We begin tonight with the nurses' strike, which began at 7 o'clock this morning and will last for 24 hours, almost three decades after the last such strike. But for a lot of people, that was the first time they had taken part in any kind of protest, let alone picket. Again, unheard of. Never in the history of industrial bargaining in the health sector has the Prime Minister spoken publicly on bargaining as it's happening. There's this narrative that unions are bad, striking's a bad thing. Yeah, so look, at that stage there was no campaign, there was nothing. I think it was just very much a different vision of how. That never before in NZNO's history had a national DHB mecca been recommended, offer had been recommended, and members said no. So all of those are victories that I think members can be really proud of. Members in the DHBs were not only fighting the employers and the government, they were fighting their own union. In 2018, Nurses, midwives and healthcare assistants in Aotearoa, New Zealand won pay rises of around 12.5% and strong commitments to address chronic understaffing. It was their fifth offer and contained serious concessions on the part of the DHBs, who had been forced to do this after the first nursing strike in the country for 29 years. At the end of the campaign though, many union members were frustrated, disillusioned and exhausted because they campaigned against not only the government and their DHBs, but against their own union leadership, the New Zealand Nurses Organisation. So this is a story of a flax roots campaign built organically once bargaining was underway. It's a story about divisions for what trade unions are, and it's a story of what can be achieved through collective action. And it's produced in the spirit of earnest reflection. Kia ora, um, my name's Grant. I chose nursing, uh, an unusual choice really for a bloke, after spending a long time at university and wondering what to do with my life. I'd completed an honours degree in particle physics, I'd completed a diploma in humanities and comparative literature, <laughs> I thought what do I do next? <laughs> so I took a year and I spent a year volunteering at the hospice in Dunedin where I studied and decided that actually this is the kind of work I wanted to do because it was meaningful, it was something that would take all of me, you know, use, use all of my abilities. Over the previous decade or so, there had been dilution of leadership in nursing. Mm -hmm. Directors of nursing had been, you know, these, this is the most senior nurse in the hospital, right? They'd been slowly whittled down in terms of what they were able to do to support the nurses. Another thing was there aren't enough nurses being trained. But the, so the big factor, the big one, was the whittling down of the health budget. So between you know, 2010 and budget 2017, that's May 2017, the Council of Trade Unions calculated that they were one and a half billion dollars short. Uh, the funding was increased in dollar terms, but it didn't match the inflation. It didn't match population growth. There were more people, and the government was demanding more and more services from, from the DHBs and they were putting in not enough money to cope with those three things. And by 2017 budget, when we were starting to bargain for this mecca, they were about $1.5 billion short according to the Council of Trade Unions. And I mean, just in terms of the increasing population, Auckland Hospital, for example, calculated that 
with the growth in Auckland's population, they would need an extra operating theatre every year. And I think... Um... This is Erin, a nurse from Wellington who's been a union delegate for most of her nursing life. She mentions a thing called CCDM, which stands for Care Capacity Demand Management, and is a tool introduced aimed at working out how many staff were needed on each shift. CCDM has produced extra staff, but most areas it hasn't, and I don't think the members have bought into CCDM for that reason. They, you know, people spend a lot of time every shift putting in the numbers, doing all the calculations, and it will show this is how many hours short we are today or this week. But that's all it is, it's producing some statistics. It's not making life better for the patients or the staff. Coming into this round of negotiations then, NZNO members had leftover frustrations from the previous mecha bargaining. I was actually on the NZNO negotiating team. I had been on the National Delegates Committee for seven years by that point. And so the, the um, yes, there were a number of pieces of unfinished business, I guess, coming out of that bargaining, particularly around mechanisms to make sure we got safe staffing, you know, enough people with the right skills in the right place at the right time. So that was like uh, still, still, still to be done next time. And there were other issues as well. So this is why we deliberately timed the agreement to expire just before the 2017 election. And the theory was that if we were in bargaining at that time, politicians are particularly sensitive in the lead-up to elections and might be more open to our asks. I went to law school and applied for a job with the New Zealand Nurses Organisation. This is Georgia, who at the start of the campaign was an organiser at NZNO. Um, somehow conned them into hiring me without any, any experience and kind of learnt my way in the world of trade unionism and organising um, in great part with delegate support and the likes of Erin Grant and other delegates who really taught me a lot about what it was to be union, how to be union, how to organise. The role of a good organiser, I think, would be to work with that nurse who isn't getting their break, encourage that nurse to collectively work with their other nurses to identify are they also getting breaks, and building a platform of common concern about not getting breaks, because I guarantee if one nurse isn't getting breaks, very few of them actually are. And then collectively as a group identifying what sits behind that and what the solution looks like. And the solution look, would often look like leveraging the contract or the collective agreement as we call it, which would protect safe staffing. So I would see the role of a good organiser is in a staffing issue as a facilitator. And also education. And if you remember, Georgia, we at one stage did the little brochure that said if you do one hour's unpaid overtime a week, this is what you have donated at the end of the year and <laughs> equated it to a trip to Paris or a new television or whatever, had all the price right. And that was very effective in getting members to take breaks. So the basis of any good bargaining strategy has to be that you're going in with the demands that most members prioritise. So um, widely, the, and, deeply widely and deeply felt, yes. that, that is the, that is the union cry, <laughs> absolutely. And so members across the country were asked to prioritise their demands. And it was really not surprising, I think, to anybody. What sat behind virtually every key issue that members raised was just two things, safe 
staffing and fair pay. So one person's expression of safe staffing may be they never get their breaks. Mm -hmm. They never get their breaks because there aren't enough staff. Another person might talking about uh, not having enough senior nurses on their shift or having to um, work late unpaid. Again, safe staffing. So those two things were key. And I think that's where a lot of members had got to, was many members had tried to work through their breaks, had tried to do harder, faster, quicker, had started running and then jumping, leaping and flying to get through. And by 2017, they'd realised actually it's not an individual problem. It is a systemic problem of health underfunding. And the only way to fix a systemic problem is collective action. So for me, a strategy for campaign work and campaigning for change is about identifying the problem, Mm. identifying the solution, the vision, what is it you want to achieve, and then working out the mechanism of how you get from where you are to how you're getting where you want to be. And I think it's really important to have those two states really uh, well defined and understood, where you are, where you want to be, Mm. because you can then map the change. And when you're communicating people to invite them to be part of change, I think it's really good to show them that by doing this, you are changing this to land here. Because historically, I think some of the activities we were doing in the Mecca, um, in historic Mecca campaigns, didn't necessarily have a logical connection to problem, outcome, or after. Mm, and yes. I would find that members, if you tell them to do something without any explanation of how their action mm, mm. contributes to change, chances are they're not going to. It's a bit like if I said, stand on one foot, say the alphabet backwards, and hey, it's going to be a pay rise. Yeah, rightly, you wouldn't do it. Whereas if I say, look, we've got, we've got to leverage social pressure to the government so that they are willing to invest in health and give us the money we need for a decent health system, you can say, okay, I see how my action of handing a flyer, having a conversation, posting on Facebook is related to that, so I'm more willing. So I think campaign strategy and articulating campaign strategy at the very get-go and being as explicit as communicating that strategy to every participant makes a difference with people's willingness to do the stuff and the thing that you are asking. When you say, how are we going to get what we want? First of all, you need to know what it is that members want. Okay, And I don't think that was accurately measured in the first place. So in terms of developing a strategy to achieve that, well, you, you haven't got the starting point. The, the, the starting point wasn't there. Part of this story is about two different ideas of what trade unions are. Are they about member empowerment to defend and improve their rights as workers? Or are they professional associations which represent a workforce in a slightly more technocratic sense? The first point at which this tension occurred was in coalescing a cohesive set of claims to take into bargaining with the DHBs. As Georgia explains, there was a claims process and thousands of members contributed, but NZNO at that point has a kind of philosophical kind of approach around what's called interest-based bargaining and that's the idea that you don't go in with a bottom line or a set percentage and so NZNO um, went in with some um, with some pretty important demands around safe staffing a fair pay rise 
But if you asked members, do you know what we're going for, they didn't. And look, when I was an organiser running meetings, I would, as an organiser, I had a script and you know, I would say, well, we're going for um, a reasonable pay increase and safe staffing. And quite often members would then say to me, what does that yeah, mean? but what are we going for, you know? <laughs> that's so, very interesting, that's very interesting. Yeah. So when, when in terms of strategy, I mean, the point that Georgia made earlier, first of all, you assess where you are, your current state, and then your desired state. And if you don't have a clear picture of your desired state, well, then you can't have a strategy. And that was uh, that was a, an issue at the start of the bargaining. I think most people entering into those negotiations didn't have a vision of a loud, present, in-your-face, hair-to-be-heard campaign. Mm. I can't speak for them, but that that's my sense. Well, I mean, that, that, that conversation started quite early on in the piece. I was involved in some discussions with key players, and the, I was told, that's not how we do it. End of story. I think it was just very much a different vision of how. And I think, so, you know, campaign strategy is about the how, and do we need to? You know, I think was possibly another. In fairness and in context for the team navigating a really hard space, there hadn't been resource and infrastructure put together to support a large campaign, and so they're, they're really short on... Um, money and staff. Um, this isn't and shouldn't be a surprise to anyone in the fact that it was flagged ahead of the bargaining. That says there was no campaign. There was nothing. And nothing from NZ to know and nothing independent of NZ to know. In December 2017, DHBs made their first offer to NZ No members. So the, the offer was recommended. Okay, so the negotiating team made the decision to recommend that members should vote for this offer. It was, it was a poor offer. However, my expectation when the, when the voting started on this offer is that it would be accepted. Unhappily, grumpily, but accepted. And that was based on the fact that never before in NZ Knows history had a national DHB Mecca been recommended, offer had been recommended, and members said no. How did it happen? Well, look, about, so look, as the meetings, because the voting was taking place at meetings, and I was around the country, the meetings were taking place, and the, the feedback was dribbling in, and actually, about a week out from the end of voting, I thought, hang on a minute, something's happening here. I actually think I was wrong, and that members are going to vote for the first time against an offer that's been recommended to them. And I went to a lot of the meetings where people voted and I think NZ and I had called it wrong in recommending that offer. I think I think it angered a lot of members. The offer wasn't just poor, it was paltry, it was it was an insult. That first offer, sometimes any monetary offer is more insulting than none and that was the one with the two hundred and fifty dollar lump sum. Pre tax. You know, there's an awful lot you can do with that. The way I conceptualise why it was a no vote, not a yes vote, is that members had been leaping on faith for a long time. They had been told that things were going to get better, or and they'd heard a lot of promises from politicians, from their DHBs, from the accountants counting the beans, that they just needed to wait a little longer. And my take was that members were just all out of waiting. Yeah. The time was now. Yeah. It was apparent, actually, before the, the mecca bargaining started, from the previous round where I was involved in the negotiations, it was apparent 
at that stage in 2015 that members even then wanted a loud, public, in-your-face campaign. Because even at November 2014, there was a feeling this is what we need. And we didn't, we, you know, we, we scraped by, to be honest, we scraped by in the 2015 to 17 period. But coming into 2017, members were not going to sit back again with no publicly visible campaign. In February 2018, two NZNO members launched a spontaneous Facebook page, which became an alternative campaign. It was two, it was a nurse and an enrolled nurse who sat down, probably had a chat over dinner or wine or something, and said, let's be heard, and started up a little fa- a Facebook page and... They got to members, you know, people understood what they were saying, they said it very clearly, and they they organised marches, they <laughs> organised, you know, a great feedback loop. They were in the media, in the e- media. even though they were anonymous, they were mm. interviewed as anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. They'd called themselves Hear Our Voices. So that to me was really clear that there were many people, and not tens of thousands of members flocked to the site, that didn't feel that their union was doing a good job of amplifying their voice. They didn't feel heard. Well, I think it was also to get members to stand up and say, no, you're not doing it just for us, we want a voice too. And, And I think they did give a lot of members the confidence to speak up. It launched at the beginning of February, and within a month they had 30,000 people signed up on their Facebook page. Which was the, and still is to date, I think the largest Facebook page of industrial concerns in New Zealand. It far exceeds any other trade union page in the country. I think what they also did is that they took an issue that many nurses were feeling as an individual issue, an individual issue of being exhausted, being over it, being fed Mm. up, and they amplified it and united nurses to realise that it's not an individual issue, Mm. or it's not just that my ward's a bit short, Mm. it's actually a national issue that every member is experiencing in every hospital and every ward. And they managed to get people anonymously, again, to protect themselves and patients to to tell their stories right. and some of the stories they, they published were were really shocking and I think they did resonate with not just our members but with, with the public generally. So this is the point at which those two visions for trade unionism create a bit of tension. And what I haven't mentioned so far is that in 2017-18 Grant was the member elected president of NZNO. And as Aaron says... Grant was a very effective and popularly elected president and did a brilliant job of getting around and talking to people all over the country. And that didn't go down well with some people at NZNO who weren't really used to that. So we kind of had two parallel streams going on, I think. Hmm. Yeah. So we've got a situation where there's tension, right? Where there are different ideas about whether or not to campaign, what a campaign should consist of, what type of campaign... So there's obviously different ideas within the tent. How do we how do we respond to that? Well, look, I think, I mean, I thought hard about this as a, as a representative, national president of the union, because the people leading the bargaining, I'll speak to them generically, did not take well to this new development out of out of social media, this Hear Our Voices campaign, and in fact, they issued instructions to staff of NZNO that they were not to go 
that they were not to take, there were no Indian, no flags, uh, these, these marches around the country. There were no Indian, no banners. So Indian, no was essentially told to boycott the marches. Mm. And after soul searching, I decided that no, I wasn't going to do that. So I, I joined the marches, and I know that many, many other of our core members and probably some staff did the same. I was organising up until about halfway through the Mecca, but the question you asked of, in light of the fact there's an alternate campaign being run, what do we do? Uh, that was the point at which I became the campaigner. So that, that literally became my question. Yeah. It's worth taking a moment to reflect on how wild this is. The NZNO, a union representing a massive workforce across the whole country, had one full-time campaigner. Just one. And though as I'm sure you can tell this far in, Georgia is intelligent, fierce and thoughtful. She's by no means an experienced campaigner. So, what the hell did Georgia do? Stepping into a split campaign with two offers released and rejected. So the question, the question I had was, how do we use this passion, this energy, this connectivity and focus it on the campaign strategy of problem identification, solution articulation and action. And for me, I think a lot of it was about trying to trying to go where the members were. So the members were on Facebook. So we created a Health Needs Nursing Facebook page and a brand. It ended up just being me and a Facebook page. So I was answering questions all hours of the day and night. I was trying to be really responsive and engaged because that's that's the kind of buzz and vibe that members were getting from each other. So I really felt they needed to get that from their union as well. That kind of idea of health needs nursing was the way that we decided to frame the campaign because you had Health was really topical, but because our bargaining was taking was prolonged, shall we say, then we'd actually had a change of government. So we had a new government, a Labour, Greens, New Zealand First coalition, slightly left of centre, possibly. So the idea was that we had to build a kind of framing that told the story as it's not your fault, but it's your it's your um, job, turn yeah. to, and your job and responsibility to fix it. So we tried to frame the problem as rundown health system solution investing in health by investing in people, outcome being everybody's better off, patients are better off, and the mechanism of change for that campaign was to use one of the best campaign assets we had, which was nurses, healthcare assistants and midwives themselves who had huge public pressure and public identifying with the issue of a broken health system to put pressure on the decision makers and the funders to give us the offer we needed. So that was the campaign strategy. And in her post-Cabinet media conference a short time ago, the Prime Minister was repeatedly asked about the pay negotiations, but she refused to say whether she thought 2% is an acceptable offer. Jacinda Ardern says she will not be intervening in the pay dispute. That would be a question for those who are involved in the negotiations. Obviously, those are undertaken between uh, DHBs and between uh, the NZNO. There was a sense of unreality for me because because the, the previous collective agreement expired in April of 2017. So, you know, the, the, the law in New Zealand is that uh, an expired collective agreement remains in effect for one year after the expiry date, and then it disappears. And... So we were approaching this time, we're heading up to April, and I was thinking, hang on a minute, 
We're not going to have any collective agreement at all in, in, in a few weeks' time. Everybody in our union will be on an individual contract. At that point, I think it was becoming really politically difficult because these rambunctious nurses were being loud, they were being rowdy, they were being pushy, and they weren't refusing to back down. So at that point, a decision was made somewhere in the halls of government and powers that be that actually we need to be seen to be doing something. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is urging DHBs to set up an independent panel to break an impasse over nurse pay talks. Nurses and midwives have rejected a proposed pay deal from DHBs. We heard from the DHBs earlier in the programme. They say negotiations are now at an impasse and in mid-April the union will discuss the need for a ballot over strike action and what form that might take. It's important that we move quickly to address this impasse and to remove the barriers to reaching a settlement. I'd like to see DHBs put forward a process to unlock the impasse which involves an independent panel being established which will review the barriers and make recommendations to both parties. Again, unheard of. Never in the history of industrial bargaining in the health sector has the Prime Minister spoken publicly on bargaining as it's happening. And what that obviously shows is that they were taking flak and, and were feeling the pressure from what was really quite an organic run campaign at that point. It wasn't union uh, kind of directed, it was member driven. Mm -hmm. So members succeeded in getting the Prime Minister to start talking about their issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that was, that I really think was victory number one for the members. Yeah. As April turned into May, there was a big show of strength on May the 12th, which is International Nurses Day. Marches and rallies were held across the country, all run by the union's Flax Roots alternative campaign. And so what we did first prior to the ballot for industrial action was we held rallies across the country. So members and their delegates, so their union leaders and their organisers were encouraged to locally create events that worked for them and that started to be opportunities to build public support, put pressure on the government um, and start to repeat and tell that narrative that we had built for the campaign. And this was starting to starting to actually achieve something, right? This this campaign strategy which didn't exist in the first place, which was being, we're building the plane as we were flying it, basically, because the second big win, I think, first of all we got the Prime Minister to intervene, but then after that we had the panel, the independent panel that she had proposed, and the health minister uh, talked about employing 500 more nurses, right? So this was not part of the bargaining, because of course, you know, the minister's not party to the bargaining, it's with the employers. But, but this was starting to, to show that we were getting some traction, and actually on our issues of understaffing and, and not enough nurses, that the government was starting to think and listen and come up with some ideas for solving it. So we were starting to get some more wins, more runs on the board. Part of that strategy of building some lower level events prior to industrial action was that for the most part, most of our members hadn't engaged in industrial action. So part of that early strategy about building these rallies and these industrial activities was to 
build people's confidence and courage and give them a taste of what it feels like to take collective action to be out and be heard. And locally in Wellington, we did some great things. Like we had sign waving. The toots and the public support was amazing. We did flyering at the uh, railway station. We had some rallies along the Wellington. So it was a great way for members to start to practice doing stuff and things together to keep the pressure up. Because it also took a lot of that digital activity and action and actually took it to the streets. On the 28th of May, the DHBs made what turned out to be a mistake. Rather than distribute a third offer to members via the union and its bargaining team, as it's legally obliged to do, they released it to the media. Well, I think people were outraged at the way they massaged the figures to make it look as though people were going to earn a lot more than they would. The way the uh, DHBs put out the figures and you know, really made it look as though it was a much more lucrative profession than it actually is. <laughs> so I think that was the DHBs not quite understanding that members were still pissed off. I think they had this view that members just didn't understand it. And I think the DHB thought that they could stop this by talking directly to members and convince members of the good deal. So I think it was... Um, brilliant strategy just that just went absolutely you know the wrong way and it's morning report nurses say their dispute with district health boards is about more than just money it's about recognition and it's about respect nurses have rejected the latest pay offer and a strike is looming in July I mean this is unprecedented honestly to get to get that many offers rejected I think not many unions in New Zealand in the modern period would have that kind of um, experience. So you'd had the DHBs who had inadvertently kind of kicked the hornet's nest, I'd suggest, and just the members became more active, I think, and more determined not to be beaten. So when you have had three or four offers when you have had an independent panel assess and explore the issues of nursing. I think the the strike ballot was bold because at that point options were exhausted. For a workforce, very few of whom would have been working during the previous nurses strike in 1989, I asked Erin as an experienced unionist how do you go about facilitating conversations towards taking such a significant step? A lot of people, if they don't have a a union history in their family, their mum or dad hasn't been a member of the union, they don't know how they work, or even worse, they've got parents who have brought them up saying unions are bad, stay away from them. So a lot of them, it starts with a very very basic union history, you know, we didn't get the 40-hour week here by accident just because the bosses decided one day you're working too hard, or weekends or sick pay. It is very hard for some nurses to walk away from patients' beds, and it's just saying this is better for the patient, not just you in the long run, if we have safe staffing, you know, if if we're all okay. I think the challenge and the way to overcome it is is to have a conversation with those that are concerned about striking and to actually connect with their values of why why they don't want to strike. They don't want to strike for their patients, for safety, Mm. for the public, and actually connect all of those things they hold true to actually striking. Because when you strike, when you take industrial action, you're standing up for your patients, Mm. you are working to keep them safe Mm. in the future, Mm. and all of that. So it was working really hard to frame industrial action and taking that just so un-nurse-like step of walking out from Mm. your patients Mm. and actually reframing that as a statement 
development of patient safety and support. And in many, ca- many cases that would work, I think, because mm. actually, yeah. And I think that's, that's one thing that I've reflected on after um, the long journey of our MECA campaign was that actually building industrial education and really supporting members understand the mechanisms of unions, industrial actions is really important to do before you even start bargaining. And that's because with the kind of neoliberal world that we live in, there's this narrative that unions are bad, striking's a bad thing, if you just work hard, keep your head down, you'll be looked after. Part of the problem is that when you just get so beaten down, when you haven't had a tea break, when you haven't had your lunch break, when you're working nine hours and not being paid for the last hour, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that um, if you fight hard, you can win big. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the alternate campaign space did really well. When we started to pick up and having conversations, we did really well is that we inspired people to believe it's possible because I think there's a lot of narrative in the world that it's not possible, so Mm -hmm. just don't bother. So that was, I think, part of the challenge was convincing everybody that fight big, win big. NZNO balloted its members for two 24-hour strikes, which, while researching the campaign, I found kind of surprising given that one member of the NZNO board in a previous job at a DHB had issued a trespass notice against a union representative trying to enter a hospital, which hardly strikes militant union action. Either they were finally following their members' desires, or perhaps they were banking on the strike threat bringing enough to bring a satisfactory offer from the DHBs. So our legislation and law mandates that once you've put strike action, um, once you've balloted for strike action and you notify the employer of strike action, you then have to go to mediation. So I think that possibly, I don't know, I'm speaking for the bargaining team now, but I think that was part of the strategy too, was to use that strike ballot as a lever or a mechanism for securing a better offer without having to take strike action. Because taking strike action for members is huge, both financially and emotionally, Do I think. Do think so? Do you I think, think so? Yeah. Because, of course, I wasn't involved in the bargaining and I didn't, I didn't have co- close contact with the negotiating team. But certainly the communications externally, were, they were serious and they were going to do it. Mm. Nurses and other health workers will go on strike as a last resort after strongly rejecting an offer from the country's district health boards. But most of the nearly 30,000 nurses and midwives voted overwhelmingly against the deal, saying they've been underfunded for years. Hospitals are now preparing for nurses to walk off the job. It's the first time they'll go on strike in 30 years. And sure enough, the DHBs came forward with a revised offer. But NZNO leaders, without consultation with its members, cancelled the first of the strikes, which were just a week or so away. Is it as outrageous as they just said the strike's off without asking you? Yes. Yes. Wow. I would say it's complex. Like it, it, it's. I think members' experience of it was really frustrating in the fact that they had overwhelmingly, for the first time in a generation of nursing, voted to walk off the job. Well, actually, we'd voted to walk off before uh, in two thousand and four, and that strike notice was never issued. Actually, but there, there was in the back pocket of the bargaining team. Anyway, so that's just. The oh, oh, well, there you go. Sorry, she did. But I think there were there were differing opinions of the legalese around the ability or potential to have members voting on an offer while strike action was planned. A lot of kind of 
stuff around good faith. But I think what's interesting, and I think it's finally been settled by Anzano, is the fact that right now, as we are talking, members will very soon be voting on a new improved offer mm-hmm. whilst while notice strike notice is still in place. Yeah. But in terms of the, that was pulled without consultation, outraged. Yeah. Outraged. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the good side of that was that it did make a lot of people who had never been active union members before more active and more vocal, certainly more vocal. I remember that week and I remember that decision to pull the first strike and I personally, just as an individual, think that that was, that was a key moment in that's had impacts and kind of future ripples since the Mecca bargaining, just of members feeling heard and backed by their union. Rightly or wrongly, I, th- I think that a lot of members felt at that point that was a key juncture of members losing a bit of trust that their union was backing them 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, by this stage, we'd had our uh, negotiators recommending a poor offer that we rejected. We'd had that happened two more times. We'd had other people organising campaigns and, and, and NZNO leaders saying, don't go, you know, you have to boycott this. Mm-hmm. And then when we say we're going to strike and they go, uh, sorry, we're cancelling it, what it meant was, in effect, the m- members in the DHS were not only fighting the employers and the government, they were fighting their own union. Mm. And that was the perception, I think, in the, in the beginning of July, that was the feeling, mm. yeah. The Nurses' Union has put a new pay offer from district health boards to its members to vote on amid a protracted pay dispute. Nurses have been at an impasse with DHBs for months over pay and working conditions and have a 24-hour strike planned for the 12th of July. That's next week, of course. On Friday, the union called off another strike, which was scheduled for this Thursday because they received a new offer from the DHBs. It was a good-faith response from the union. They put that to their members. I asked Grant how he understood his power as the president of the union, elected by his members, and what he felt was within his capacity to do to try and influence the NZNO leadership, who'd so disappointed thousands and thousands of members. The power of a union, any union, at any time, is ultimately derived from collective action of the membership. And, I mean, you can have great research, right? You can have really good arguments, you can have your, your, your legal your legal beagles, you know, lined up in court with some fantastic, you know, case law behind them. And that's all good. And that can actually make some wins. But but ultimately what's powering it is collective action of the membership. So when you say, what well, my power? I had no power except what the members were doing and 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 asking me to amplify. That is that is what I felt because no because it wasn't being done inside of NZNO to the extent it needed to be for us to be successful, yeah. Grant, as one of the public faces of the campaign, was giving speeches at rallies and engaging with members online, and Erin wrote an article for Stuff. So how did they negotiate the tension of trying to keep some kind of united front whilst feeling like those leading them weren't following the strategy as desired by the majority? Um, how did you do it? Uh, really difficult. I mean, I think there are... Yes, you have to have a united front, but not all the time. I mean, once people cross a certain line, then you don't back them up, Mm. you know. It was a very hard line to walk across because I certainly didn't want the effect of that that action by NZNO to cause people to say, well, I've had enough, I'm leaving the union. Mm. And it did have that effect with some people. Yeah. It's. I don't think there's one right answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you try and 
you try and focus on what holds people together and let the cards fall where they may, actually, yeah. I think that's a really astute way of looking at it. It was, it was a really difficult space for, I think, everyone to be in. <coughs> really hard for staff, really hard for members. Good to go. Good morning, uh, um, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Memo Musa, and I'm Chief Executive uh, uh, of uh, uh, NZNO. Uh, so welcome to this press conference uh, where we are going to uh, advise you of uh, the outcome uh, of the vote on uh, the latest uh, DHB uh, maker offer. NZNO members have been voting online over the last seven days on the revised offer made by DHB's following facilitation. And voting closed last night at 5pm. Uh, once again, uh, NZNO has achieved a historic voter turnout. And this demonstrates our members' passion and their commitment to improving the health and well-being of patients and nursing and midwifery professions. The result of the ballot, while closer than previous outcomes, is that a majority of members have voted to reject the proposed DHB NZNO Nursing and Midwifery Multi-Employer Collective Agreement. The notice for strike action on the 12th of July 2018 remains in place. Strikes in healthcare aren't like strikes in most other industries though, and the planning went into overdrive. And that's because the law mandates that you have what they term life-preserving services. Because nursing hadn't walked off the job in 30, 29 years, there was no baseline to understand what that looked like. So delegates, activists, union members and the employers sat down at each hospital and negotiated that. And went through ward by ward. It was excruciating, hours and hours over weeks and weeks, working out what was needed in each area of to maintain life-preserving services. One of the campaign challenges around having to have some people stay back, some people out on the picket line, so to speak, is how do you keep both of those groups feeling like they're part of it? And so how we did that from a campaign perspective was we really framed those that were providing life-preserving services yeah. where they were part of the strike too because they were enabling it. Yeah. They were supporting the strike by staying back mm -hmm. so people on the picket line could be on that picket line. Mm -hmm. And so we had stickers that said mm -hmm. life-preserving services and that was a way that those doing the LPS, the life-preserving services, were part of the industrial yeah. action. Providing um, life-preserving services was industrial yeah. action. So we worked really hard on messaging that so people felt comfortable that they could stay back and keep people safe or that people felt empowered that they could go on that picket line because they knew that patients were safe and colleagues were behind. First up tonight, the nurses' strike tomorrow is going ahead. Thousands of nurses are scheduled to walk off the job at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning for a 24-hour strike. Trees hospitals are running on a skeleton staff today as tens of thousands of nurses take industrial action over pay and conditions. Thousands of nurses have turned up on picket lines outside hospitals throughout the country and they're here to show the public and their bosses they believe they're worth more. Because it started at 6.30 in the morning, you know, as just little numbers gathering together outside, it was outside Middlemore Hospital in, in South Auckland there. 
The moment that over the entire campaign that stuck with me most was I was on the picket line at 6.45am waiting for that shift to walk out of the hospital. And there were only a couple of dozen of us to start with and then more and then more and then they walked out as you say, as Georgia mentioned and, and, and where you were and they came to join us and then you know the toots started and of course Middlemore is right next to a train station. So it wasn't just car, to cars tooting. <laughs> the trains, they're really loud when they toot. And I think, you know, that day, I mean, I've, I've been to, I don't know how many protests, but for a lot of people, that was the first time they had taken part in any kind of protest, let alone a picket. So it was pretty momentous for a lot of our members, I think. There was celebration in taking this momentous, like historic decision to actually walk out of hospital for the patients. Stephanie Watts, who's nursed for more than 40 years, joined thousands of people to march up Queen Street in Auckland. She says the extra $38 million that DHBs have promised for 500 new nursing staff is pitiful. $886 million to Mycoplasma bovis. 100 million to America's Cup, 2.3 billion for the four defence planes, ACC flush fund of 607 million, and we at the bottom of the heap at 38 million. And then it was shifting into central Auckland for a march up the streets, and um, it was huge, it was massive, you know, there were a lot of worries before, and the half hour, the hour before, all people turn up, but it was massive and we marched up the street and there was television cameras, John Campbell was there interviewing people. Why are you on strike Angela? I'm on strike because the same thing is happening today as happened 28 years ago. We don't have safe staffing, we're not being paid properly and our patients are daily at risk. Were you a nurse 28 years ago? I was a nurse 30 years ago. And did you go on strike the last time nurses yes, went on I strike? Yes I did and today shows us that we're in exactly the same position and we're fighting for exactly the same reasons and the number of people here shows you that we've got the same causes. What are the most important reasons? It's about safety. It's all about safety. And there was a huge rally in, in, in Aotea Square. We had our nurse leaders speaking. I said a few words on behalf of the, the, the leadership, which they didn't actually really believe in, but anyway. <laughs> Pretended they did. But we also want the government to understand something in return. They need to move faster, and they need to start with a bigger step right now. Um, you spoke well. <laughs> thank you, Erin. And then after the rally, then there was the afternoon, the afternoon shift coming on duty, the morning shift coming off duty, the life-preserving services that is. So that was at Auckland Hospital, and there's another rally there. That day was my favourite union yeah. day of all the union days, and every day should be a union day, so yeah, it was pretty special. So Michael, what happens next? Well, there's the possibility of more talks, and the nurses say that they are open and available to having those. We've also heard that an offer could be made at any time. Morena, um, following industrial action in July, we had a positive and immediate response from DHB employers to return to the negotiation table. On the 24th of July, NZNO's negotiation team secured an improved DHB MECA offer. 
so the offer that came after the industrial action was potentially not everything everybody had hoped for. Um, but, and there was a but, what happened was that the health minister again stepped in and whether stepped in or was invited in is not entirely clear and by whom is not entirely clear but there was a safe staffing accord which materialised uh, in the space of about 24 hours. Mm. Alright, afternoon everyone. Um, first of all, uh, we're spending just this afternoon addressing uh, any questions that uh, might arise as a consequence of the announcement around the vote, final vote, um, by the nurses around the pay negotiations. That's why I am hugely grateful uh, that we are eventually got to uh, a place where the nurses have accepted um, the offer that has been made. When I go back and think of all of the victories that members organising together achieved, so we had pay equity, we had new steps, we had a safe staffing accord, you'd had a panel on investigating the issues of nursing, so all of those are victories that I think members can be really proud of. Was it enough? Was it fair pay? Did it alleviate safe staffing? Those are questions that members can answer. Safe staffing, no. But in the time, it was phenomenal. The frustration of many members with the campaign wasn't over though, and there were two things in the organisation of the strike that rankled. So I was in Auckland that day. I'd been actually invited to speak by the, the chair of our union's Greater Auckland region at the rally they had there. I was subsequently told, subsequently uh, disciplined, for, for not having permission from the, the, the top figures in the union to, 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 to go to Auckland to speak to the striking members. That was a disciplinary offence on my part because I, I didn't have their permission. Although I had been invited by the, the Greater Auckland Chair. Do you remember that? Yeah, I'd forgotten about that till you sent it. I think I'd blocked it, you know. Yeah. yeah um, and yeah, but I'm so, so glad that I went. And I've, and I've said many times that, that this is the highlight of my nursing career that day. And then there was how the life-preserving services were organised. Pickets and rallies took place at hospitals around the country in the first nurses' strike in nearly three decades. Hospitals felt the pressure would appear to be coping. In fact, we've been hearing throughout the programme that some hospitals had more volunteers and emergency cover on than nurses who are normally rostered in the same wards. And when your key, when your key concern yes. is safe staffing yes. and the day you strike is the day you get safe staffing is a little frustrating, calling, right? to it say is, the least. That, that is true actually. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that was, that was one of the quirks and yeah. I think, yeah. I personally think one of the tragedies of the Mecca campaign was when it was all done and dusted, I'm not sure many people felt like celebrating some of those phenomenal Achievements. No. There was exhaustion and anger and hurt that it was just a relief to get there, actually. I didn't feel like celebrating. But it was a relief, you know. I mean, yeah. And, and, and as time's gone on, I felt better about what we achieved. Mm. Yeah. So was it successful in the immediate industrial outcomes? I would say absolutely. But I reflected on our campaign and the fact that 
I, I really encourage people to stop thinking of campaigns as singular silos yeah. and the fact mm. that was it successful in the fact that, that, that we were bigger, stronger, more connected and ready to fight the next issue? No. I would say not. No. I would say we were fractured mm. and exhausted. Mm. And I don't say that to... Uh, be negative and critic. You know, I'm I'm really proud of so much of what was achieved there. But and the spirit of solidarity and offering lessons. I think that part of the success has to be that you are bigger, better, and stronger to fight harder. Let's debate this one. Okay. Okay. Because I think there are some some things that were learnt, which are now being applied, which are making NZNO more capable this time round than at the start of last time round. And in particular, you know, the bargaining and campaign strategy, well, there is one to start with, and the way that the bargaining is being conducted is also very different, much better. And so so some people, some people in NZNO have learned from Mm. 2018. Mm -hmm. I think if it had been 100% successful, we should have seen an immediate and big increase in the number of delegates mm. stepping yes, up, for yes, example. Yes, and that didn't happen. No. These activist members who would have become delegates, mm. and so at the end of that, these, these new newly energised people didn't really see a place for themselves yeah. as, no. as delegates in NZNO, and many of them have left, sadly. But also a, a lot of people becoming disillusioned was the fact that we had, we'd given strike action, we'd taken strike action... And the next step from NZNO was to say, no, let's get rid of Grant, who's a troublemaker. So, you know, members were, you know, couldn't relax and think, look, we've done well. That, that became the next Better. issue for members. We elected yeah. our president. He's done what we wanted so far. You know, what's happening now? So I, I don't think there was any time to relax or celebrate, really. I, I, I think, you know, the way things happened after the strike, it became clear that that... Some paid staff and elected staff at, uh, at NZNO didn't want activists or people who were too stroppy or mouthy in the union. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they wanted people who paid their fees, you know, yeah. paid their fees by direct debit every month and yes, yes. did what they're told. Is this like a common union thing? Where no, 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 no. I mean, look, look, this is that common bureaucracy on steroids, yeah. right? <laughs> Yes, bureaucracy is common and there are issues with every union, but really nothing like... Most unions want their members to be active. The more active, the better, I would say. Yeah. Um, no, but, but, but there are people at the top of NZNO who don't want members to be active. No. In the USA, nursing unions have been leading radical, beautiful and effective campaigns, both transforming the quality of local healthcare and going on to play a key role in a more progressive union movement. So with Grant as president and the membership having forced its leadership into strike action and actually winning a load of awesome stuff, was there a way to elevate other people with a similar philosophy and politics to transform NZNO? There was a pathway because the people who, many of the people who, within NZNO who were leading that, industri- that agitation formed themselves together into a group called the Members Action Group. And this was a, you know, the jargon term, a rank-and-file network, you know, which anarchists and some others talk about. It, it existed. Um, I mean, I, I tried to build that kind of thing for decades <laughs> without success, but suddenly there it was. And, and, so, and so, yes, they stood candidates in the elections for NZNO. They won some seats. But the, the greater the success that these people had, the stronger the pushback was. Mm. And in the end, push came to shove, and we lost. Mm. 
right? And there comes a point where no matter how strong your principles are, you know, it becomes too tiring to put yourself in the way of, you know, abuse, not criticism, but abuse. We did have a group of, you know, long-time activist members who stood for the board of directors in the election after that, and they got in and they were treated so badly that they all resigned. Well, no, sorry. Three all, but, of, all but one. All but one resigned shortly thereafter. And I have seen some of the correspondence and messages and things that, that they had during that time and afterwards. And, you know, I don't think NZNO would ever talk to the worst health employer in the terms it talked to those people who stood up um, put their names forward and then had to stand down. So one of the challenges of that campaign and then where things went to, I think, is that you can't campaign in a silo. Yeah. So members' yeah. trust and confidence yeah. in their organisation, yeah. members' connectedness to the vision of what the organisation stands for yeah. really, really matters. Yeah. And that's one yeah. of the reasons, to be honest, that I decided that actually it was it was too hard a space for me to be a campaigner in that space because when you would send out an email to members at a call to action, an invitation to participate, connect, get involved, there was a lot of other stuff that was going on that I think meant that members, some members weren't instinctively drawn to mm-hmm. be part of that vision and that mm-hmm. collectiveness that you were trying to build. You know, we're debating whether or not it was a success, the strike, right? So on the one hand, yes, on the other hand, no. But actually, because I've been arguing, yes, it was a success, but there's one area in particular where it hasn't succeeded. The Safe Staffing Accord, which was signed in July of 2018, which was, in my opinion, a great achievement of our campaign, that we'd got the health minister to put his signature on the bottom of this pledge, included a, a, a guarantee, a commitment, that we would have Safe Staffing implemented in every DHB by June of 2021. Now, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, I've got to go post it online, but I suspect that we won't have it by the time people are listening to this. I think that's that's one question I think it's worth asking for campaign strategy mm. is how do we how do we enforce what we've won? Yes. And so I think the biggest lesson for me in terms of campaigning has been that there is no such thing as a campaign with a start and a finish. Campaigning is a continuous state. If you really want to succeed and achieve and win, then it has to be an everyday thing that you do and it has to be across all of your work. And it has to be the entire organisation. Like, you can't campaign in a silo. And that's what we did last time. You know, we, we, we almost succeeded in um, winning the organisation to that kind of unionism. Mm-hmm. Almost. Will it happen this time? Maybe. That is my hope. That is my dearest hope, is that out of this new uh, mecca bargaining campaign, we've got strikes, you know, strike notices issued at the moment, is that out of this campaign, it will transform the union so that we're no longer this little bubble, this little corner of NZNO, which is allowed to do this stuff when we're told. I'd say also looking at what's happening this time is that being union, taking industrial action, standing up and saying no, takes practice. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one one reason that I would say that last time was a success mm-hmm. and that members have experienced that. They're more confident, they're more willing and vocal. So that's really cool and it's going to be really exciting to watch. I asked Grant, Erin and Georgia what advice they have for people and they all gave me the exact same answer 
without hesitation. The single thing we would all say here with 100% conviction is join your union. That's the number one message. You know, for all their faults, you know. Yep. Hi. I agree. <laughs> Cow pie. Solidarity to nurses, midwives and healthcare assistants currently in the middle of another campaign. Please leave Blueprints a review in your podcast apps. It helps other politically active people find the show. Make sure you stay subscribed for the weekly One of 200 pod. We've got two or three more campaign episodes to come, which are a little bit delayed because the people involved haven't been free to speak to us until next month. One about a campaign from the 60s, on which basically nothing has ever been written, one, an environmental campaign from the 2000s, and a series finale on Protecti Humatau. For series three, we'll shift to looking at organisations from New Zealand's political history, how to build them, how to move from one campaign to the next, what building power feels like, and how to interact with the left ecosystem. We'll have episodes on the Progressive Youth Movement, Native Forest Action Council, and Te Rupu Rawakore, amongst hopefully others. Kia kaha.